Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Joy Khosai. Joy is inspired by innovations that address gaps in access to high quality care. As an entrepreneur and resident at Duke, she is the co-founder CEO of Pluto Health, a company focused on improving patient access and care through a health platform that bridges siloed real-world data. She previously served as Chief of Digital Health and Strategy for the Duke Clinical Research Institute. Through previous public health work in Africa and Asia, she developed loved innovations focused on improving access to health services that were used for clinical trials which then led to her founding Charter Health a health tech organization dedicated to developing patient safety and communication tools deployed across both academic and private health system settings Hi Joy, welcome to Woman to Woman podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You are a first generation who grew up in California. How was California growing up? Oh, uh California is wonderful. I mean, I grew up, I guess, in the part of California that most people don't think about. So I grew up in the Central Valley in uh, Clovis, California, where there are a ton of farms. <laughs> so I grew up across the street from cows and cornfields, but I had a wonderful childhood. My uh parents started uh nursing homes for adults with various disabilities or i would say various abilities you know healthcare was always integrated throughout my my lifetime so it was really good to grow up in an environment where it was important to see how many things are involved in taking care of a patient and how often it wasn't necessarily related to medicine or going to the doctor so it's a good, good great experience growing up did you have certain career ambitions you wanted to be a doctor when you were much younger or you know when did this all come about yeah i i would say that i always wanted to be a physician but there was always a part of me that recognized that there's so much more to caring for a person than the medicine itself so you know i i went to public health school to try to understand the system in which provider could operate in early on growing up just having lived in the first nursing home that my parents started. So I left out the fact that we didn't when my dad started the nursing homes we didn't have much money so we lived in the very first nursing home he started. But from that early age, you know, you see quite well that a doctor is only as good as the system that they can operate in. There are a lot of limitations that go into caring for patient whether it's insurance schedules infrastructure etc so i was always really excited to learn more about that piece which is um why i studied uh, medical anthropology in college trying to understand patterns of human behavior uh trying to learn more about public health so i studied public health before venturing into the tried and true medicine space So during your schooling you had certain internships so how did they really help you get to where you are today Yeah so I studied global health early on in college and I would say that going throughout those internships you really understand well you can't fully understand what someone's going through but you can try to understand the different factors that go into caring for someone and so I worked in with the secretary of health in Mexico I've worked in uh with the National Cancer Institute in Thailand and with a you know Clinton Foundation in Ethiopia and also uh studied 
for a year in Niger in Tanzania. And throughout those experiences, you realize how small you are in this big ecosystem of healthcare. Um, and so it's really uh, an exercise of understanding how you can get all of the parts that are important to collaborate and, and work efficiently so we can all move um, the same direction. So you have a very interesting story on how when you were doing research in Tanzania for a year, how you got grants and how everything kind of moved forward. So do you mind sharing that with our listeners? Oh, absolutely. When I was in uh, Tanzania, working in Tanzania and Niger from uh, the year of research when I was in medical school, I was on this pathway where I really just wanted to become a really decent doctor who ran a clinic like Safe for Med- uh, Doctors Without Borders or somewhere abroad. When we were in the field, we were notified by our medical school that we'd received this large uh, Gates Foundation grant. And part of it was to integrate technology in the field. At first, I was very against it. I was thinking, most people just need clean water. <laughs> we need light bulbs. We need like, clean water. What are we doing trying to make an app? Like, are we crazy? But over time, after spending some time developing a mobile tool that could keep track of patients, basically we made a mobile EMR. I fell in love with technology. I was a total, I was totally converted. Uh, we could keep track of where patients were, how they were feeling. Uh, what community centers uh, needed more help. It could really help streamline and operationalize things and take care, allow us to take care of patients in new ways. So with that experience, I became obsessed with mobile technologies. It became ever so present to me how powerful it could be. So for example, when you're in the field and the electricity cuts out, you're still on mobile. If a clinic does not have a computer, you're, you can still be on mobile. If they don't have Wi-Fi, you can still use mobile to communicate and transmit information. So because of that, like I was really just struck by how powerful mobile technology and healthcare could be in improving operations and access to needed resources. So I came home totally converted and was this med student who really liked making healthcare apps <laughs> at the end of the day. So it was a really, really good experience. So you come back and you start this whole mobile tech community in your school. How was that received? It's good. I was actually, it was around the time the iPhone had just come out, like within that year or two. And it was a really neat thing to introduce uh, to our colleagues. And for me, it was just fantastic to get engineers, uh, designers, you know, people who you traditionally don't think of as being involved in the health of taking care of someone excited about making something that would improve the health care of uh, populations and individuals. So it was so meaningful to get people who are not traditionally in healthcare involved and think through a better process for people. So it was, it was really fun. So you continued this journey through your residency at Duke as well. Yes, I was a chief of the digital health and strategy at our research institute. So how do you think these experiences from Tanzania kind of really helped you do your job at Duke? Like were there certain um, instances where you found Tanzania did not have all the resources that of course Duke has, you know, it, it's different worlds altogether. There you must have found something that's really common throughout, no matter where you are in the world trying to do, you know, technology with health. Yeah, so whether you are in a resource constrained setting or a high resource setting, what's astounding to me is how similar 
the problems can be, right? We still have difficulty communicating with patients when they're at home. Uh, We still have lack of understanding of how a patient's doing in an efficient manner. I feel like these problems are widely felt uh, no matter where you are, obviously more so in a resource constrained setting. However, if we think through what needs to be done, what needs to be implemented in order to address a problem, they become quite similar. It's about understanding adoption, understanding what resources you have to work with, and understanding how you engage with your stakeholders, whether they're patients or researchers, to get buy-in and understand incentives for adoption. So at a high-level framework, they're similar, but there are definitely certain nuances for each environment. Throughout this journey of yours, did you have certain people who really influenced you different ways? And did you seek out any mentors? Absolutely. I actually wish that I seek out more mentors because they're, I mean, everyone has been so amazing. But you know, I, th- I would say I would start with the very first mentor I've ever had, or mentors or my, my parents. I mean, gosh, you know, my father didn't even graduate high school. And he came to the United States with barely anything in his pocket, and just decided he wanted to live a very meaningful life and contribute in the healthcare sector. Um, And so he's, you know, just being part of the family. um, He's really inspired me to think about what's possible, right? Like, what can we do with commitment and passion and the sense of responsibility of doing the right thing for people? And so just seeing him grow his business, the nursing, nursing homes taking care of Uh, patients, you know, taking the extra responsibility to take care of them. Like my dad, even though he owned the nursing homes, would still dress up as Santa Claus and make sure that he went to every single doctor's appointment, even if he had 50 clients like in the nursing, like he was just so dedicated to the community that he was building. And that I think has really inspired what I hope to build as we build Pluto or the company or just the communities we create as we go throughout life. And so obviously, I mean, my thing, I would, I would credit my dad and my mom, who's just, just a firecracker. My mom, you know, was my mom. but uh, I would, I would credit them. But along the way, I would say that it just wouldn't be possible if I didn't have the amazing female mentors that I had. So for example, growing up, I always knew I wanted to be in healthcare. So I started taking pre-med classes. And I failed my first organic chemistry test. And I was like, this is it. I can't, there's no future for me. And then um, actually my chemistry professor, I went to a very small college, a Pomona college, right? It's a small liberal arts. She actually reached out to me and she's like, come to my office, let's talk. And she went over all of the problem sets and was like, Joy, you almost got all of these problems right. You were just missing the last few steps. Let me mentor you and let's just see how you do. And she she even told me, she was like, there needs to be more women in science and I'm gonna take it upon myself to make sure that you stay. Uh, she mentored me and I got 100% on my next chemistry test. And lo and behold, I've obviously finished pre-med and became a physician. But throughout the years, I feel like it just takes a crew of people who you know, gracefully for one reason or another, believe in you and take that time to advise and mentor you. Um, Even if you kind of personally, sometimes at times quit (laughs) and feel like it's, there's like no use for you. I think it's so important to have that support system there. And I'm just so thankful for people like Dr. Selassie. She was the the, uh, professor that really pulled me out. I just can't 
express anything but extreme gratitude for these folks. So if you were not here doing what you're doing today, what would you be doing? Oh, oh no. I can't imagine doing anything else. You know, so I'm a physician, but I also make technology and I feel like it's the best of both worlds. So honestly, I can't imagine doing anything else. But in a dream world, I guess I would be an artist. I paint abstract art um, when I have free time and it's really, it's really nice. However, I, I also feel like this very strong commitment to accelerate healthcare access. So I honestly couldn't imagine doing anything else right now. You mentioned Pluto Health. So what is Pluto Health? You are definitely excited about it. So what excites you about what you do today? I'll start with your first question. Uh, What is Pluto Health? So Pluto Health bridges siloed data across multiple resources, whether it's EMR, insurance, labs, Uh, social determinants of health data sets, et cetera. We bring that together, organize it, and then understand insights of what's needed next for an individual. So our job is really to bring a softer side to health interoperability solutions. So we are a data company per se, but we also infuse it with clinical support, understanding who the patient is and what they need next, understanding that, you know, hey, this person might be missing their age-appropriate cancer screening, or, you know, they might be missing a lab, let's help them out. So our job is to analyze the data, make sense of it, and fill in that healthcare gap. And what's super neat is that it doesn't matter what health center Uh, the individual is coming from. If they're on one of the top 12 EMRs, Epic, Cerner, et cetera, we can help them out. And that accounts for about 80 to 90% of the U.S. health system market. I'm excited about is that the power lies in the individual and that we can work with you along the healthcare journey to understand what's next, Um, whether it be uh, access to uh, care, affordable medicines, labs, or access to a clinical trial if it makes sense in your life because you've just been diagnosed with something. That's our job is to be supportive to an individual throughout the course of their life. And what's exciting to me is that I think this is an incredible step towards helping our colleagues alongside us address healthcare disparities. I think as, as with COVID, we have seen how broken our healthcare system can be. And so I think what is exciting about this time period as it relates to data and technology is that we are at, I feel like at this cusp of seeing really interesting technology emerge that can accelerate and improve access for a whole lot of people. That That is extremely exciting. So we see a lot more focus now on data science and data because we have so much data. And as you said, you know, understanding the data and making knowledgeable decisions based on that is I think the next critical step for any industry that we're looking at. So for people who are just graduating or thinking about new careers um, or options, when they go into college, what kind of courses would you recommend that would really help them get to this field in the best way possible? You know, I laughed because I would say that my course, the courses I took probably wouldn't be what I Maybe. I mean, so for me, I uh, majored in medical anthropology. I mean, I, I majored in neuroscience, but I spent so much time in those anthropology classes. What was really fascinating to me was understanding patterns of human behavior 
under no matter like different cultures, different social economic status, et cetera. So trying to understand those patterns and understanding the different factors that go into a process. So to me, that was anthropology. It was beautiful. It's like you're understanding why things are perhaps the way they are and how we all may be more connected than what is visibly apparent. That was really neat. Um, I would say as well, if I had to turn back time, I would probably take more IT courses. Uh, it was just not on my radar at the time. But I I would have to say in college, and this is for the college uh, folks or women out there, I think I stressed too much about the types of classes that I would take and why it was important. I think at the end of the day, if you fill your life with experiences that you think are meaningful, it'll work itself out in the end. I can't tell you how many of my colleagues in medicine majored in English, uh, taught history, you know, uh, were math teachers or what have you. And they still found their way because those experiences shaped them and guided them to an ultimate path. So So you co-founded Pluto Health. What was the main inspiration? You know, being an entrepreneur is not easy. Being on your own must have been very intimidating. So how did you get started? And what really motivated you to really go out there, find funding and do everything on your own? Yes. So I could not sit with the fact that I could figure out how to fix a process and had enough friends and colleagues who were smart surrounding me to help me that we couldn't do it. I mean, like there was just, it would be totally unacceptable for me to know that we were sitting on this amazing capability and amazing like team that we could form without giving it a shot. One of the things that I feel very passionate about is that there needs to be a data interoperability enabled platform that stands for patient privacy. So one of the things that I had a tough time finding through work previously was an interoperability provider that would commit to never selling your data or even de-identified data. And so I was thinking, well, we've got a way to do this even better, which is, you know, our platform is so slick. It just operates. You can get all your records within a few minutes, less than 15. It's so slick. And we also really care about protecting your privacy and that the fact that that sort of company didn't exist, or at least I didn't, wasn't aware of any was enough to propel me to keep going. And as well, there's so many bad things that happen when we don't have access to patient records. Like when somebody's, there's so many extra scans, so many adverse events with meds. There's so many things that can can go wrong if you don't know who the patient is. And so that was enough to really move us into that direction. To your other question about fundraising, I'll tell you, it was it was not easy. It was such a hard road and process. So did you have any naysayers along the way? Oh, for sure. Initially, when we first started fundraising, I feel like I almost quit at least a few times. We had 42, I counted 42 no's, N-O's, like big N-O's from different venture capitalists and investors. You know, people were basically questioning if you know, we really needed access to patient data. And also, do they need this support system? And FYI, we think you're doing too much. You know, you either need to be a data aggregation solution or a health analytics or care delivery. And I was always like, no, let's put them all three together because that's what we need. (laughs) Yeah, we had a lot of naysayers, but, you know, at the end of the day, you have to tell yourself, are you going to let somebody tell you no? 
are you going to tell yourself no? And so I could not tell myself no. So you just keep doing it until you get it. And we were just so lucky to finally find a group of investors who were like, this is, this could be amazing. Let's do it. And now it's just like, it's evolved so nicely over the last couple of years. I mean, we've, we're um, partnering with some of the largest industry leaders, some of them. It's just great. I mean, I've had a chance to meet the patients that we help out and it's just, it was so worth it in the end, even though I thought I would quit like a number of times. Do you think being a woman made it a little bit more harder? I would say so. I know that there are definite statistics about how hard it is for women to raise venture capital. There were times where I felt it. There were times where I was the only woman in the room. I say this because it was a virtual room, but there would be like 15 people on the call and I'd be the only woman pitching my idea, you know, or let alone the only clinician um, in the room. It is difficult, but at the end of the day, I feel like instead of like, there were times where I want to be like, oh, you know, they just asked me this because, you know, they don't think that I know what I'm doing or they don't trust that I know how to handle things like data, you know, or like things like that. And so it doesn't matter at the end of the day, you are going to find people who support you and believe in your core competencies and your team. But certainly you're going to hit some roadblocks because we've got a lot of legacy to deal with. However, I think leading by example and just keep going is the most important part. It's not easy, but it must be done because there needs to be more people out there. Um, and so, I mean, it wasn't easy, but totally worth it in the end, on the other end. Do you feel there are certain behaviors that we as women can embody that really will help us move forward in whichever field we want to go? I'll tell you a story. And so just bear with me for a second. So I think the mentality and the paradigm has shifted over the last, you know, 10, 20 years. When I was in graduate school, I was told by a professor that I would never become a leader because I had, at the time I had permed my hair, you know, that, that was a thing back then. And I had these like nice beach waves and she's like, you're too California. You have beach waves and you, the way that you talk makes you sound, she literally told me that I sound like a ditz when I talk. And I was crushed. She told me that I needed to cut my hair and talk more like a man and all this stuff. I was crushed. I was a young person right out of, you know, college a few years. And I was like, gosh, this is what I need to do to get ahead. And, you know, like growing up with my parents, my father, like you just are never, you, that's just never even in your purview. You know, you, everyone works together, your team. But I, I think fast forward, now that I've started this company and just, just along the way, I've come to realize that there are what we would say conventionally feminine traits that I think are just so darn powerful. For example, asking for help because you don't know, acknowledging your blind spots, surrounding yourself with people who understand and are experts is a skill. And I feel like women do that well. <laughs> But it's what you need in order for a team to really excel, right? As well, thinking about the collaborative group, the collaborative health of a group um, when you're leading a team, understanding that you need to hear different opinions from all the members of the group. I think these are characteristics that women do very well. We think about cross-collaboration. We think about the collective good. And it's actually played out really nicely in some of um, the partnerships that we've embarked on, or 
flat out just not possible if unless we thought more creatively and collaboratively. So I think, you know, embrace those traits that you feel like are you and just run because ultimately I would hope that it would work out in the end. Those are great observations, by the way. That's so on the mark. But there are certain perceptions, right? Some cultural, some growing up, depending on what community you come from. Have there been instances where you were groomed a certain way because culturally that was more appropriate behavior? And then that kind of once you go out into the real world, not so much. And how, how did you really turn that around to your advantage? I think this is where preparation and hard work over time demonstrates itself. I would say that I've worked in a variety of cultural settings and you do come across different personalities, different cultural norms. And sometimes, even though it's wrong to get the job done immediately, you have to play along sadly. And then we'll, we could change it later. But like, I've had instances where I would CC like a male colleague and have them take the lead. I would, in the interest of getting this done for this, these patients, let's just keep our eye on the mission and just suck up my ego and move on. Now, there is a place to call it out. It might not be that time, but there's always a place to try to fix it later on. I think over time, like as you know, I'm thinking of a project specifically um, that we did with a group uh, abroad where they didn't talk to me. They didn't want to email me. I would send emails. I, even though I was leading the group, even though I was funding the study, I was, nobody would email me back except for my male colleague. They would email him back within the hour. So every time it would be Ron, 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 you know, like answering other questions. But then when something troublesome happened and my colleague could not answer the question and looped me in and I helped fix it, then they realized that I actually could do something useful. <laughs> so I think over time, it shows itself how helpful you are, you may have to be patient, but it is and we need to fix it. But I, my advice would be if you're dealing that in the acute situation, call it out if you feel like you can. Uh, but if you feel like there's something urgent pressing, like patient's life or something, just get the job done first, and then we'll call it out afterwards. <laughs> At the end of the day, the job needs to get done first. Yes. You also um, mentioned a very interesting thing you were very scared of public speaking what helped you with that well I would say I still am <laughs> I you know growing up my mom so I left out the fact that before my dad moved to the U.S. he used to he grew up in a monastery you know like had the, our family did not his family did not have very much resources so he ended up growing up in a monastery and so we were very like super buddhist like so there's a statement you have two eyes two ears and one mouth use them proportionately um it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a pushover or you're submissive or whatever but what it does mean is that you listen a lot you watch and observe and then when you say something make it matter don't just like say something just for the sake of it. And so growing up, that was just like who I was, you know, I didn't talk very much at all. <laughs> so I feel like the supportive friend that was always like dependent and reliable, you know, things like that. So when that I went to medical school, I was so uncomfortable speaking in front of people because you would have to present and highlight like what you know. Um, so it's a personality stretch. And actually one of my um, advisors was like, you need to go talk to a speaking <laughs> Because you're a lot smarter than people think just because you don't talk a lot. <laughs> so there's that. But one of the things that helps me, I still struggle with this every day, but 
whenever I get nervous, I think about it's not about me. It's about sharing an idea and conveying an, a message. Like take yourself out of it and like say, think about like this is something that you care about that we have to discuss in order to make something better. That's helped a lot to kind of get outside of my head. Any closing comments for our listeners, Joy? There's so many things that I feel like I could I could talk about, but I would I would want to impress on the fact that if you truly believe in something, don't let other people say no to you. Um, they could say no to you, but that doesn't mean your journey ends or that process uh, that you're looking for has come to a close. It just means that you've got to explore another avenue. I really think that over time, if you stick to your core, the answers will will come to light. You just got to give it time. And uh, I would really hope that, especially for a, a woman fundraising in the startup world or what have you, it's okay. It's okay. You're going to fail. Let's just accept that you're going to get a lot of no's and that's okay. Um, because it's just part of the process. And I would hope that people stick at it because there could be, there could have been so many great ideas that weren't brought to light because somebody felt defeated. So I would hope that people just keep going, even if others tell them no. Well, thank you so much, Joy, for this great conversation, all the great advice, and uh, for sharing your experiences. So we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.